All right, so when I was in college, uh, I was a choir guy. I was a choir person. I don't mean like I just sang in the choir. Like I was one of those choir people. It's kind of like band people. Uh, they're, just, they're different than the rest. And I'm not going to say like choir geek. That's offensive and, and pretty accurate, actually, <laughs> to be honest with you, right? And, and part of what made us insiders was kind of the goofy inside jokes, the traditions, the fun kind of things that we would do to, to encourage one another and to tease one another and all that stuff, right? Including... A birthday tradition that I've never experienced before that. Uh, I haven't experienced since then. We had a, a special birthday song we sang. We sang the normal, you know, happy birthday to you, right? It was beautiful. It was choral. And then we went into this other song, which is this slow, like, funeral dirge. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. You know this birthday. Oh, sing with me. One year closer to death. Happy birthday. And it was hilarious. Then we go, round the room, you must go, you must go. And it was hilarious. Every single time it was hilarious. We laughed and laughed and laughed. And part of why it was so funny, of course, is because it was so ridiculous. One year closer to death? I mean, we're 20. We're never going to die, right? (laughs) It was funny, at least in part, probably because none of us have really ever experienced death. (laughs) Truly. I mean, most of our grandparents were still alive at that point. None of us had ever really been touched by this thing that is death. And so we could laugh because it was so funny. It becomes less funny when you've actually experienced firsthand the loss of someone. It becomes less funny as life goes on. You experience more and more life and therefore more and more death. Increasingly, one year closer to death, it begins to feel more real and less funny. I'm guessing if I went on poll to those choir members from 30 years ago or whatever it was, probably most of them aren't singing that song anymore. But it's human nature, right? I mean, teens certainly still feel that way. When you're young, you think you're going to live forever. In fact, Scripture speaks very much to that directly. In Psalm 90, the psalmist says these words. He prays these words in song. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass, they quickly pass and we fly away. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our ways. Apparently it's not something that comes to us naturally. It's something we have to learn to do. Does anybody know who wrote Psalm 90? I, I think we tend to default to David, right? Like it's a psalm. So probably David. This one wasn't actually written by David. This one was written by Moses back in 1400 BC, making it the oldest psalm in the Bible, the first one that was added to kind of the lexicon of their song. It's a prayer for the children of Israel who had just spent 40 years wandering around in the desert on a trip that should have taken them a couple of weeks. They spent 40 wasted years wandering and bickering and complaining. And to that, Moses prays, God, teach us to number our days. It's not natural to know what that time is limited. Our lives are fleeting and throughout every stage of life, from childhood to teen years to difficult adulting years to retirement, we're invited to stop wandering in the wilderness, to stop, to pause and number our days. Moses, the same author, who at the end of those 40 years of wandering, as they were about to enter into the promised land, spoke these words. He said, these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You'll teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk on the way, and when you lay down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall have be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts, on your house, and on your gates. 
It's intergenerational language. He's saying, teach this to your children. Talk about this in the streets. Talk about this with your friends, with your family, when you sit down to meals, when you go to bed, when you rise. Literally, like, put these words on your clothes and decorate your house with these words. It's the same author that then says to them, God, teach us, all of us, to number our days. There's a place to write this in your notes. It's crucial that we learn to number our days. See, apparently it's something that they and and we need to learn. It doesn't come naturally for us to do that either. Tim Keller, who many of you probably know as author uh, and founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, wrote a book a couple of years ago called On Death. The Amazon summary uh, reads like this. In a culture that does not, that does its best to deny death, Timothy Keller, theologian and best-selling author, teaches us that facing death with the resources of faith from the Bible, with wisdom and compassion, Keller finds in the Bible an alternative to both despair or denial. A short, powerful book on death gives us the tools to understand the meaning of death within God's vision of life. Keller is a remarkable pastor who has, since his ordination in 1975, has walked alongside of countless families and individuals as they went through the process of facing death, facing their own death, of facing the loss of, uh, of, of loved ones. He's, he summarizes all of that learning and experience in this powerful little book. What some people don't know is that about a month after this book was published, Keller received a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. A brutal diagnosis for anybody. In response, he wrote a breathtaking article in the Atlantic in March of 2021 called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. Listen to these words. Death is an abstraction to us. Something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. Tim Keller, given his years of experience, would have been infinitely qualified to speak to this subject as a pastor. But now he was speaking as one who was personally experiencing that face of death in his own life. Who literally in his final years grew his faith. It's a remarkable man, a remarkable journey, a remarkable story. Well, today we are concluding the series that we've been in called Growing Pains. Looking at how each of the different life stages we're at has unique opportunities and unique challenges that we face. For most of the series, we've talked more to and less about the different age groups. You know, we talk to the teens in the room. We talk to the retirees, to the to those who are adulting. Mostly we talk to these different age groups. Today, we want to talk about a stage that we've called the final years, the last stage of life. And I, and I want to talk to that group, certainly. There are some of us who perhaps fit into that category. But mostly I want to talk about that group to, to the most of us in this room and watching online who have not yet entered that stage, we can now, in preparation, learn to number our days. Well, it seems like it's a million miles away. We will all get there. And as we're getting there at a faster rate than we've ever gotten there before in human history, as Chris pointed out a couple of weeks ago, 10,000 people per day are retiring right now in the United States. For the first time in our history, we have more people over the age of 65 than under 18. It's never happened before. The baby boomers aren't babies anymore. <laughs> They're like full-grown adult retiring boomers. We're getting there faster than ever before, and we're staying there longer than ever before. According to Ezekiel Emanuel, in a heartwarming little article he wrote for The Atlantic called Why I Hope to Die at 75, 
Uh, he wrote this. He said, the 20th century experienced an enormous extension of life expectancy in Americans. For instance, he said the life expectancy of the average American at birth in 1900 was approximately 47 years. By 1930, it was 59.7. By 1960, it was 69.7. By 1990, it was 75.4. And today, whenever today was, it's 79. In a century, we've almost doubled our life expectancy. So, so we're getting to this at a higher rate than ever before. We're staying there longer than ever before. But over that same period of time we're looking at, that, that 20th century, that period of retirement, particularly the final years, look very, very different now than they did back at the beginning of the 20th century. For most of human history, families lived in, in small communities, agrarian communities. They stayed together and they did life very intergenerationally on the family farm. Grandpa and Grandma ran the farm. When Billy got married, his wife moved in. And when they had kids, Grandpa and Grandma took care of the kids so that Billy and his wife could work the farm. And as the parents, the grandparents aged, it was Billy and his kids that then took care of these adults. My own father has distinct memories of his grandfather, my great-grandfather Peterson, living with them when he was a child. In fact, it was my father who first discovered that his grandfather had passed away. Which to us sounds kind of dark and morbid and grisly, right? But this is how it's worked for most of human history. This was the system, right? Even in my own lifetime, back when I, was, I went to visit my grandparents, my father's parents, uh, we'd always go to the back room and we'd visit Aunt Edith. Aunt Edith was my grandfather's oldest sister who is widowed and who wasn't destitute. I mean, the truth is she had done very well in life. They had money. She didn't live with them because she couldn't afford to be somewhere else. She lived with them because that was the social construct. But that's changed in a very short time, relatively speaking to the all of human history, right? Basically, in, in, in the 20th century, that changed. We're talking about for, from my childhood. This, this is decades, not centuries. Listen to these words by David Gallagher. In the past, the aged were an integral part of the family and community life. A substantial pattern of social disengagement and isolation emerged during the middle of the 20th century. The farm and agricultural culture was replaced by urban renewal, and the family unit changed. Grandma and grandpa no longer had children close by to help during times of need. Social workers began to make, take the place of children and family, and care centers replaced home care. So we're entering this phase faster at a greater rate than ever before in human history. We're staying there longer than ever before and doing it very, very differently than ever before in human history. In the past, aging and even death were seen as a natural stage of life experienced in community with family members. Now, aging and death is viewed and treated as a medical condition that is experienced in isolation we are trying to medically extend life while increasingly making that life experience feel increasingly isolated and purposeless. In that same article the author wrote, over the past 50 years, healthcare hasn't slowed down the aging process so much as it slowed down the dying process. It's dark. I, mean, I didn't promise this one was going to be real cheery. <laughs> but there's truth. There are rings in that. For me in the series, we've acknowledged that each life stage has its own unique opportunities and its own unique challenges. But I would, I would argue it's perhaps easier to identify the opportunities for kids and teens and young adults. Yes, they face incredibly, incredibly difficult challenges, but it's so easy to see the upside if they can make it through those challenges. 
For many in the final years of life, the opportunities seem to be shrinking while the challenges they face loom ever larger. And they experience very real and profound loss, the loss of loved ones, spouses, friends, even children and grandchildren. The longer you live, the more people you know die. They experience the loss of function. I was talking to um, Rob Johnson, uh, who is one of our longtime members. I'll talk about him more later. But he's a chaplain who works now for Presbyterian Homes. And I said, if, if you if you could say one thing to, to this congregation about you know preparing for this, what would it be? He said, tell them to protect their hearing. And I thought, what? That's the one thing. He said, you would not believe how difficult it is for these people as they lose their functioning, as they lose their hearing. They feel so isolated and alone. They can't interact with their kids, with their grandkids the same way. We don't think about that. I think so often we, we're aware of the life stages we've been through, but we don't even see the life stages we haven't done yet or the challenges that they face. Challenges like the loss of dignity, the loss of purpose, the loss of autonomy. And I, I think, having done some research, that is the experience of so many people as they enter this, this last stage of life. But how much of that's actually natural? And how much that's a product of our unnatural broken social constructs? Joshua Briscoe, a hospice and palliative care doctor, wrote these words. Many of my patients tell me that they don't want to become a burden. Who taught them that? They learned it from a culture that values fictional autonomy of the individual. The argument that a patient who feels she's lost autonomy should have the medical option to end her life does not just leave matters up to the individual, but solidifies this cultural myth telling everyone that the life lacking full autonomy is not worth living. Sadly, some of the most vulnerable people are ready to believe that, not by their own choice, but by the choice of a culture declaring that that dependence is undignified. How, How much of what they feel like they have no purpose as a result of us discarding them, of removing their purpose, of removing ourselves from their wisdom, removing them from our presence and our homes and our lives. How much of the grieving of the loss of autonomy is a product of a culture that worships individual autonomy and thinks that dignity is tied to our ability to be productive, to contribute? Physician-assisted suicide is sometimes euphemistically called death with dignity or dying with dignity. As if that person can no longer be autonomous, can no longer contribute to society, no longer feels that they have a purpose, they no longer have dignity, and therefore have the right, and maybe even the responsibility, to die before they become a burden. It sounds ludicrous, right? But as Chris shared, week one, the, the age group in our culture with the highest suicide rate is 85 plus. That's not natural. That was not true historically. That's, that's not, it's new and it's not natural. In fact, it is the very unnatural result of a culture that worships youth, vitality, control, productivity, and defines dignity and purpose by those metrics. Friends, that's not the message of the Bible. Our narrative is a completely different story. From page one, scripture says that humans have dignity because they're humans. That they are created by God in the image of God for the glory of God and for the purpose of God's kingdom. Meant to be an experience of every life stage in community with one another and in community with the Creator. The worship of autonomy and productivity is therefore not only socially unhealthy, it is antithetical to the picture we see in Scripture of what it means to be human. I originally titled this sermon, uh, Discarded. Because in some ways I think that's what we do 
in our culture to us, our oldest members. Even if we don't mean to discard them, that's the experience they feel. Removed, unneeded, discarded. And beyond just the, the horrible ethics of discarding people, it's not actually sustainable for us either. Financially, structurally, socially, relationally, spiritually. Dave Hansen, uh, who's gotten a few shout-outs in this series, uh, and who really started the conversation with Chris about this topic, particularly of the aged, uh, sent us another great article written by Rebecca Love in Forbes called How to Mitigate the Looming Senior Care Crisis. Our current approach of casting aside older adults isn't sustainable for them, their caregivers, or society. We must shift our cultural view of aging to ensure that our senior citizens are welcomed and integrated into the fabric of community life, not shut away out of sight. There's a place to write this down, too. We need seniors as much as they need us. She goes on in that article to say, long-term and senior care in the United States is in crisis. We have over 56.4 million people over 65. There are few, if any, good insurance-covered, affordable, or scalable options to meet the needs of this aging population. In everything from housing to services to care, by 2030, one in five Americans is projected to be 65 years old and over. As the number of senior citizens in the U.S. continues its dramatic upswing, the system's weakest elements, health care, social services, and housing, could stretch society's resources to the point of collapse, especially if we ignore the incremental need of older adults until they're unable to care for themselves. Counting our years now, counting their years now before it's too late. Let me be clear. She's not saying, by the way, that these people are in crisis or, or that the people are the crisis. That's not at all. What she's saying is our systems are not ready for this. Some people have called it like the, the, the silver tsunami. I'm like, well, that's kind of offensive. You're calling an entire group of people like a huge natural disaster, right? We're not ready for this. Our systems aren't ready for this. It's a crisis. It's going to be a crisis. What do we do? I mean, our culture's changed, right? I mean, forever changed. We're not, we're not going to go back to like pre-1950s agrarian society, right? Like, okay, now everybody's a farmer. And by the way, your parents are moving in. <laughs> we can't. But if we don't, how do we address this unsustainable challenge? Well, that same article points to, to one case study looking at a housing project in Aarhus, Denmark. They've introduced this very innovative idea, living concept called the House of Generations where they take a large multi-unit living situation, picture like Joanna Shore's uh, Presbyterian homes, like a large complex with many, many units, right? And, and they have a mix of retirement and nursing sections, but also family homes, youth apartments for young people, as well as apartments for disabled people, all living together under one roof. Yes, they still have to provide staff to, to care for the nursing home residents and to a lesser extent, uh, the, the, the retirees who are still very, you know, kind of assisted living, but they need less staff at lower cost because everyone in the community plays a role in caring for and being for one another. She says these words, rather than shutting older adults away, this solution integrates them into the community, enabling them to decide what care they need or want. Not only do people know each other, but they're actively involved in helping each other live better lives. So older residents may babysit for families with young children while students volunteer to help bring those with mobility issues to concerts or to other activities that are free to residents. The business benefit is that the burden of, of being primary caregivers for their elderly parents is lifted for the sandwich generation. 
Caregiving costs could decline because community members look out for each other. And child care is resolved because of the elderly help look after the kids. I read that, I'm like, brilliant. I mean, I'd love to retire there. That sounds amazing, right? I mean, it's a return to the natural order. At least it's an attempt to kind of return to that natural life cycle that is more complete, that acknowledges the challenges and the opportunities of each generation, the limitations that are there, but also the gifts of each life stage, what they can bring. It defines dignity very differently. It's so cool. And it's never going to happen here, right? I mean, maybe like in New York where people are already used to living in multifamily situations, but here, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's one of those like only in Scandinavia things. But maybe, maybe not. I mean, our current systems, they're, they're not only failing our seniors in so many ways, they're also perpetuating a system that allows us to idolize youth and autonomy and productivity over personhood. And it denies us and our children and our grandchildren the opportunity to participate in a kind of intergenerational, interdependent community that we see in Scripture. I think one of the things that we can take away from the Scandinavian model we should take away is that it's going to take us thinking innovatively, thinking differently, working collaboratively, and being willing to restructure some of the basic areas of our life in order to do this well. It's a great place to write this down. There is no reform without rethinking. Just continuing to do the system the way we're currently doing it will end in ruin for everyone. What if the church could lead the way in building that kind of intergenerational community, a community where people from all kinds of different life stages feel seen and heard and understood and valued by the people from the other life stages? Because they are actually seen and heard and understood and valued by other people. That's the kind of community that, with God's help, we are trying to build at ECC. A place where senior adults and teens and children and everyone in between feels like they're fit, that they're wanted. No matter what stage you're on, there are opportunities to learn to number your days. And some of the ways that we're doing that are very, very subtle. Uh, like Sunday mornings. If you look at the bulletin, and I believe it says here too, it says we're an intergenerational community that... And to be fair, like any church could put that in their bulletin, right? But if you look around on a Sunday morning, even if you look around this room, we are an intergenerational community that's pursuing God together. That's one of the ways that we number our days. That's one of the ways that we experience intergenerational community. If you look into our kids' rooms on Sunday mornings, they, we have teens serving, we have parents serving, we have seniors serving. That's intergenerational community. If you look at the music that we choose, I know we don't do it perfectly, but early on in the series, Chris said, let's do better to honor the old people among us than just giving them earplugs, right? It's one of the reasons we don't go crazy with the volume and have laser light shows. Neither of those are bad. We just would rather do something that connects with a broader range of people. It's one of the reasons we often use hymns, liturgical elements, litanies, songs that aren't just the latest and the greatest on Christian radio. And also, there's a lot of good songs that were written in the last 2,000 years. We, we could choose from any of them, preferably the English ones for the most part. But I know that every time I do a hymn, there's a woman on Sunday mornings who guaranteed will find me after the service, will take my whole arm and just beam up at me and say, thank you so much. It means that much to her. And I think in part, it's because hearing those songs, she, she feels seen and valued and understood. And also, hymns are awesome. If you're at the fall retreats, you saw older teens and college students mentoring younger kids. 
You saw middle-aged and even retired people leading and playing and slipping and sliding and probably risking life and limb <laughs> to invest in this next generation. It's one of the ways that we are learning as a community to number our days. It's one of the ways that we are experiencing and modeling for one another and, and hopefully for the watching world that there is a different way. We can live intergenerationally in community. When we started small churches, oops, sorry. When we started small churches at ECC, which is about six years ago, uh, we, we had a vision for this to be an intergenerational community for the most part. And the very first small church that my family was a part of was very intergenerational. We had young people and we had newlyweds. We had single people at different life stages. We had families with young kids, teens, some empty nesters. We had a senior adult woman who had just, uh, who allowed us to have the privilege of walking alongside of her as her husband's health failed and eventually he passed away. My kids got to see us walk alongside that. Ellie was so excited when she got to see this friend. And I, and I absolutely loved that. We got to go and visit and carol at Christmas from her front lawn during COVID because it was so hard to connect. I remember some of the kids showing up uh, to carol wearing like elf hats and they literally wrapped themselves in battery powered lights and were out in the yard singing in the snow to this woman in her window. What unified us wasn't our political views. It wasn't our life stage. It wasn't our common interests or enemies. What united us was that we loved Jesus. We valued intergenerational community and we lived in roughly the same area. That is a taste of intergenerational community. That is one of the ways we teach our kids to number their days. How we are reminded to number our days. We launched Small Church Connect uh, in this space a couple weeks ago here for this fall edition. And for those who don't know, Small Church Connect is kind of a way of test driving small groups. You come and, and we gather and, and people are formed into different groups. And we'll meet throughout the fall and hopefully launch some, some new small churches out of that. It's here every other Thursday night. Well, this past Thursday we met, and the group that came was once again made up of people of very different life stages. Uh, maybe not quite as broad, but we had empty nesters. We had taxi moms. We had single and married. We had 60-plus retirees, as well as 60-plus who were very, very still engaged in a career and didn't see retirement anytime soon. We had people with kids with special needs, and this is the only way she was ever going to experience a small group. We had a woman who said that she'd never been married or had kids, but that it was a blessing to hear from people in different life stages, to see some of the challenges that they face, as well as the opportunities, and to feel like she was part of something bigger than herself. As we went around the group and asked the question, how could we do more to love and support the people in our lives who are at different final years of life? It's so interesting to hear the ways that they've already begun experiencing this, at least in part. One person shared that they live in an intergenerational community. Uh, and so... While their grandkids or their, while their kids' grandparents are far away, these people in the neighborhood can be grandparents, surrogate grandparents, and they actually call them. They refer to them as the grandparents, uh, and that's how the kids know and are building relationship with them. That's one of the ways we experience intergenerational community. Another person in the small church group shared that one of her neighbors is an older adult who has expressed multiple times that she doesn't see any purpose left in life, and she just wants to die. She doesn't know how to kill herself, but she doesn't want to live anymore. And this ECC person has formed a relationship with this woman and is loving and supporting her and praying with her in the midst of that. That's one of the ways that we can experience intergenerational community. Another person in the group is Rob Johnson, who I mentioned before. And like I said, he is a chaplain uh, at Presbyterian Homes. He and his wife, Terry, have been in members here, attending here for a number of years. He's a chaplain who spent most of his career in ministry and is now working with older adults in Presbyterian Homes. 
Presbyterian Homes does a great job of caring for senior adults. They're beautiful facilities. But Rob said there's still a great need, a great opportunity to, to meet a need that Presbyterian Homes really can't meet on its own. They need individuals. They need families and kids and teens and single adults who are willing to come and visit with people, play games with people, build puzzles. Rob said he recently got to play cribbage with the oldest man in Minnesota, 107 years old. And then apparently he died very soon after that. But he got to play cribbage with him during his final years. It was a blessing, right? That's intergenerational community. That's learning to number our days. Rob said he would be happy to be a contact person for us as a church, for Presbyterian Homes. But he also said that every single home, all of these facilities, have a person whose job it is to take those calls, to say, yes, we'd love to connect your family. We'd love to connect your group. What might that look like for your family, for your small church? Maybe a couple of single adults who, who together with each other or with some other families go to play games, build puzzles, show off piano skills, sing songs. I don't know. <laughs> build relationships. A couple of weeks ago, Chris told a story of seeing a bunch of people in the lobby of a retirement home and asked, what are they doing? And the response was, they're waiting for the mail. What if, what if your kids or your small church wrote cards and notes to residents so they got that mail? Or better yet, what if those people were waiting in the lobby for you? For your families, for your kids, knowing that you're coming to see them, to understand them, to value them. That's intergenerational community. That's learning to number our days. That's teaching our kids to number their days. That's renormalizing a culture that discards our older people and instead sees them for the enormous opportunity that they offer us to be the hands and feet of Jesus with them and for them. I know that while we don't have a lot of people in the room right now who are maybe in their final days, we, we do have a number of people that are beginning to enter that, that, that have gone into retirement. If maybe it's not your final days, but you're making your final approach kind of a thing, right? I want to go back to the article that Tim Keller wrote. Here's this incredible man of God with an incredible mind, an incredible ministry, an incredible challenge. And he's suddenly faced with the question, do I really believe what I've preached all these years? Can I really take my own advice? He's able to navigate that journey through what he said was truly the happiest season of his life and the most grief-filled season. Never was there more laughter or more tears than that season of his life. And he pointed to three disciplines that were transformative for him and I think could be transformative for us no matter what life stage we're at. Keller's three principles. First, he immersed himself in the book of Psalms. It's one of the reasons I chose the passage we did for tonight. He immersed himself in the book of Psalms. He said, to be sure that I wasn't encountering a God that I had made up myself. Any God I make up will be less troubling and offensive to be sure. But then how could such a God contradict me when my heart says there's no hope or that I'm worthless? The Psalms show me a God maddening in his complexity, but this difficult deity comes across as a real being, not one any human had conjured. Through the Psalms, I grew in confidence that I was before him with whom we have to do. If you're making it up, God would be simpler. God would be the Santa Claus in the sky. But that's not who we see. For Keller, that was grounding. For Keller, he grew in his faith. Number two, he engaged in what early Christian authors called soliloquy. It's a big word that essentially means to engage with, to speak with your own heart. You see it modeled throughout the Psalms, for instance, when, when the psalmist writes things like, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Or bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. Keller says, 
the authors are addressing neither God nor their readers, but their own souls, their selves. They're not so much listening to their hearts as talking to them. They're interrogating them and reminding them about God. They're taking truths about God and pressing them down deep into their hearts until they catch, until they catch fire there. And finally, he said he investigated his core beliefs. I had to look hard at my deepest truths, my strongest loves and fears, and bring them into contact with God. Most particularly for me as a Christian, Jesus' costly love, death, and resurrection have become not just something I believed and filed away, but a hope that sustained me all day. And throughout his final days, that was the experience of Tim Keller. I'm guessing all of us have had different experiences with this. For some of us, we've lived for years pretty oblivious to, maybe pretty insulated from, that huge need that's all around us, this growing crisis of seniors that have been discarded in the last 50 years. So maybe not their shame or guilt for not having done more. <laughs> Do you feel like you failed to number your days? Maybe for some of us, we regret the choices we made to, to move our family away from grandpa and grandma. Do you feel like you failed in an intergenerational system, that you're part of the problem, you fail to number your days. For some of us who are getting older, it would be easy to look back and to look for years, to look at years, to look even at decades, seasons of life, they just feel like they were wasted. Life with regret, feeling like you invested in work or whatever and you missed the opportunity to number your days and instead you wandered in the wilderness. To feel like every birthday is just one year closer to death. No matter where you're at, I think there's good news for all of us. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Chris was reading from Acts 2 and in it Peter is preaching and he quotes the prophet Joel, right? And he said that in that day I will pour out my spirit and you're young and you're old and you're male and you're females. All of them will prophesy and dream dreams and have visions. Remember that? It was a picture of intergenerational Christian community. But did you know that just a few verses before that, God had made another promise Three verses earlier, God had said these words. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. God is well aware that we as humans are bad at numbering our days, that we tend to think we're going to live forever, that we don't naturally see the urgency and the brevity of life. But he also promises that if and when we turn to him, he can restore those years. And I don't even know what that means. But it means we don't have to live with regret. We don't have to live with shame. He can restore to you the years. He can make beauty from ashes. It's what he does. He invites us to number our years. Pray with me. God, um, I guess... I want to acknowledge that that we we are not victims of our culture. We choose to absorb as much or as little as as we want to, but oftentimes we do it unknowingly, unwittingly, and, and it's so easy to see, looking at our culture, how we have missed some great opportunities here, particularly as it relates to really venerating and, and valuing older people among us. God, I pray you give us a new vision that you'd pull back the blinds, that we would see the reality and see the ways in which we can contribute to, to bringing your hope.
your resurrection into those situations. God, help us to understand the brevity of life, to not throw life away. And God, we pray that you would, for those for whom regret and shame is such a big part of their reaction, that you'd give them hope, that you do restore, that you do make new, that you do make beauty from ashes. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.